This is the Wealth and Law Podcast, a podcast about the intersection of personal wealth and the legal landscape. We'll take a deep dive into relevant topics. We'll basically teach you what we know, and we'll engage with guests with deep expertise in their field. We hope that you'll enjoy this episode and many more episodes. So please join us on this journey as we try to bring you relevant information that is both timely and important for you to know in order to engage in this area of the world. Welcome to the Wealth and Law Podcast. I am Brent Nelson, and today I am joined by my friend, Patricia Nino. Patricia is a partner at Ramon Law in Boston, Massachusetts. Patricia, thank you for joining me. Brent, thank you for having me. Yeah, it's always a pleasure to catch up with you, podcast or not. So I'm really glad we get to do this. The uh, few people in the world who don't know who you are (laughs) would need to know who you are. So why don't you at least give the CV version of Patricia? Well, thank you, Brent. I'm a trust and estates lawyer based basically in Boston, Massachusetts, and I have written probably six books for women and do tremendous amount of speaking on estate planning topics, a lot of them geared toward women and the education of women in this arena. And an ACTEC fellow and a fellow yes, of the Family Act-Tech Firm fellow. Institute. And- yes. Yes, yes. And all the credentials that you would have as a as an estate planning lawyer who's been doing it for as long as I've been doing it. I've got all those too. <laughs> I always feel when people introduce me and they sort of give like the, you know, like when you're going to, you're going to speak somewhere and they give you like the bio, right? They're used to just reading it off your website. By the time they get done introducing you and giving you the bio, I feel like, all right, so I'm the most boring person on the face of the planet based on that. Like I have no hobbies, (laughs) no interest outside of this thing. Uh, That's sort of me. Yeah. (laughs) I, I get it. I know. It I, actually, I think it's because I mean, law in general is this way, but I think our practice can very much be this way. And, and I, I have some theories about it, but it's like it's very like all encompassing. When you like yeah. what you do, then you do it a lot. I mean, that's just the way it works. Yeah, right? exactly. No, that's really well put. It's that. It's the like it's it is a bit of a hobby. Mm-hmm. It's very interesting because it's human beings and human beings do all sorts of weird things and interesting things and good things and bad things and everything in between. I agree. Keeps you on your toes, that's for sure. Well, I did want to talk to you. I'm glad you you introduced um, the fact that you've been writing and speaking so much on women's issues in estate planning, because I did want to talk to you about that specifically, because I think you have a great perspective on it. So what you know, if you were going to help somebody who was completely ignorant understand, at least at a high level, what are the the main differences for women versus men versus others uh, in estate planning? You know, you're asking me the same question my husband asked me when I was on a plane and I was writing the first book, Women and Money, A Practical Guide to Estate Planning. And he looked at me very confused and he said, what are you doing? A will is a will and a man can do a will and a woman can do a will. Why are you writing a book for women? And I said, well, it's not the substance. Obviously, the substance is gender neutral. It's the psychology that comes from the female point of view, which is different than the men's point of view. And it's basically that women spend all of their time making sure everybody else is taken care of, their children, their parents, their spouse, their significant other. And they forget what that flight attendant says every time you get on the plane. If the barometric pressure in this cabin changes and you're traveling with a small child, Put the mask over your own face first. It's only when you do that, you'll be strong enough to protect everyone else. Protecting everyone else comes naturally to women. Protecting themselves does not. And it's the psychology of that difference. With women and men, education leads to empowerment, leads to action. So the focus has to be on education. And I think one more thing, Brent, women have to give themselves the permission to have that power. 
to mm-hmm. understand that it's okay to put that mask over your own face first. And it's part of your responsibility to yourself and those that you love. It's how you protect everyone. Yeah, that's interesting. So wh- why do you think that's the case? Why do you think women need to give themselves that permission? Because a lot of women don't remember that they were born powerful. And they look at their responsibility as protection, which it is. But they forget that if they don't protect themselves with the power that they have, they're going to be useless. They're not going to be able to protect anybody else. Do you think that it's a um, it's a difficult hurdle to overcome for at least in your experience with clients? Or is this something that it's a conversation that sort of rings true for a lot of your clients and they're very open to it? I think I think it's a generational issue now, too. Uh Okay, because I don't think that young women have this issue today, but I think that baby boomer women do. And baby boomer women are gonna inherit twice, once from their parents, once from their spouses in all likelihood. And I'll tell you a story where it really drove home to me about six or seven years ago, I was dealing with a very significant male client who refused to do an estate plan, worth hundreds of millions of dollars. So finally I said to him one day, okay, you won't wanna do an estate plan, will you do a disaster plan? He said, that sounds good. Well, Brent, you and I know that a disaster plan is an estate plan. <laughs> yeah, right. So I went to his office and I met with him and I met with his team of advisors, all male, and we're discussing who should be in charge. And he has a wife and he has three daughters. And he started to say, well, you know, tell me the difference. So I told him, he said, well, you know, my it should be my wife, she's very smart. And I suspended the meeting. I said, okay, well, then why isn't she here? And when you first hear that story, you think, well, you know, what a heel. How could he not do that? But the real person with the problem in the story isn't him. It's his wife. When he left the house that morning and he said where he was going for a disaster plan, she should have said to herself, whoa, wait a minute. Disaster plan means you're dead. I'm alive. I'm going with you. So for many women, they don't understand that the keys to the kingdom are on the table they have to pick them up, not men stopping them. It's women stopping themselves. Yeah. Well, I think that's true in in some cases. I have I have clients where the conversation basically basically goes like this: similar setup, similar type of meeting. Okay. Although, of course, I'm a man, not not a female uh, attorney. And I say, you know, who's gonna who's gonna handle everything when you're gone, dead and gone? Which is gonna happen? Sorry. Um, who's gonna handle everything? And the client says to me, or he says to me, the husband says to me, well, it can't be my wife. She doesn't know anything about finances and she just doesn't, she just doesn't care about finances. So she, you know, she, it can't be her. And it's like, well, why do you think it is that she doesn't know? Probably because you don't let her know. And probably because to your, to your point, the educational piece isn't there, but it could be there. It's not like rocket science. It should be there. And the woman should raise her hand and say, well, what would it take for me to be educated then? Because, you know, it's every single person, married person, knows how to manipulate their spouse. Every single one of them, <laughs> men and women. It goes back and forth, right? It's one thing to have a, a dialogue about finances and who's spending what and all of that with your spouse. It's another to have it with someone else who can veto your life decisions. Mm-hmm. And so as a woman, it is your responsibility to be educated so that you know in a disaster what you're doing. Being financially naive, not knowing where the checkbook is, not knowing how to pay bills is foolish. You're the only person who's going to get hurt by that. No one else. And then when you're educated, you can hire whoever you want to to make those decisions. But you have to be able to monitor them. You can't just turn over and abdicate that part of your life to someone else. And I mean, Brent, I know that you know this and I do. So many clients come in and they sign this unintelligible stack of documents. They don't think they're going to die. And I think it has something to do with taxation. And they walk out and they forget about it. And that stack of documents is a snapshot. 
that gets turned into a movie, hopefully with sequels. So you have to understand when you're signing it that there are two components to any estate plan. There's the organizational component, what do the documents say? And there's the operational component, how are the documents operated? I can fix just about any organizational mistake in the document. I cannot fix operational ones. So the heart of all estate planning is not taxation. It's who are you putting in charge of your movie? Yeah, it's so true. It's sort of like uh, the vehicle and the engine and and like you could build the vehicle, you can build a beautiful engine, but somebody has to be the one that turns the key and turns it on and then drives it, you know, and you can turn it on and drive it poorly. And there's not a whole lot that the lawyers can do about that. That's right. It's uh, it's interesting because you mentioned in in the hypothetical that you gave or the story that you gave, sorry, um, the, the composition of the people in the room, how important do you think it is to getting the composition of the people and the advisors in the, in the room just right? I think it's important that anybody who's going to be material affected by the plan be in attendance. I'm not talking about children or grandchildren. Mm-hmm. I think that comes later, okay? But I do think that having the both people in the couple go ahead and do it is very, very important. Do you, I can hear that, please. Robert, running water kill him okay you can edit that part out <laughs> definitely don't kill him i can't i can't advocate for, for murder what ab- yeah. what about do you think do you think it's important for uh women to find female advisors or do you think it's the the gender as between advisors and women is is not as important as gender is irrelevant you okay. have to find in any of this you have to find somebody you can trust somebody you can communicate with someone you can tell very important things to someone you trust Trust in a, at a competence level, but also trust at a relationship level. Mm-hmm. Do you think some of that uh, sort of natural tendency, or natural is the wrong word, but a tendency for women to um, to try to take care of everybody else and not themselves, do you think it leads into different type of estate planning? So you and I, I I'm certain, have, for example, male clients, older male clients who want to control everything and there is not a thing that they do not want to control forever into perpetuity Uh, do you think that is not maybe the typical female response or or is it something else uh i deal with many many self-made men who are very into controlling their empire but the problem is that they can't take themselves out of the equation. And yeah, when you right. really force them to start to think about, okay, nobody is ever going to be able to take control away from you. Nobody wants to take control away from you. But if you're not sitting at the table, do you want to take control over other people? Do you want to take control over your family members? Who do you want to seat the power with? And when you start to educate that controlling guy along those lines, chances are he trusts his family more than anybody else. And it starts to highlight the discussion about education. But then hand in hand with that has to be the woman saying, okay, and now how do I get educated? What do I do about it? I don't want to be naive and I don't want to be beholden to someone else. And, you know, uh, for married couples, there's a luxury in a back and forth in the dynamic. When one person dies, the other person fights the ghost of the deceased person. And they start to make decisions, but they hearken back to a conversation that might have happened two years ago or five years ago or 10 years ago or 20 years ago. And life has changed. And the decisions that you make after one spouse dies are materially different than the ones that you'd make when you were both sitting there together because that controlling person is gone. So how does it work and who's going to be in charge? Those are very complicated 
decisions and you can't make them in a crisis. I mean, every single one of us would rather be Scarlett O'Hara. Why am I thinking about this today? There's always tomorrow. But the reality is it's now when you have to sit, when there is no issue is the time to plan. And I know that you'll agree with me that the hardest challenge we have is getting people to plan properly when there is no need to do it. Yet that's the best time to do it. It's hard to do it in a crisis. Yeah, it's so true. And um, so one, one example of that is when somebody's getting older and maybe they're not able to handle their finances. And I have this conversation, you know, probably once a week, every week of my life. And it's usually one of the kids who are calling me, you know, mom or dad, they're, you know, they're not doing so well. Uh, I say, okay, that's great. We'll have to talk to them, of course. But like, you know, what do we do? I said, well, look, there's the easy way and there's the hard way. The easy way is we make this change now, to your point, before there's a crisis, before they literally can't do anything for themselves and they do it voluntarily, or we have to do it in the future it's involuntary and it's just more complicated and difficult because you got to get doctors involved and you got to convince the banks that the doctors are right, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So just do it now. Do it the easy way when we can do it, assuming that that's what they want to do. And it's so much less painful to just get ahead of issues instead of wait until everything is blown to shit. And it's brave to do that. Not everybody can do that, you know. Yeah. Because it's dealing with your own mortality, your own competence issues, your own capacity issues. And it, it it's a struggle. I mean, nobody wants, everybody would rather be in denial about the inevitability of life. And having to make those decisions and deal with it can be very complicated. You know, one of the bravest uh, men I ever met was a man who had his own company and was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. And he knew he would be deceased within uh, six weeks. And he said to me, he had two sons working in the business, and he said, listen, um, I'm not going to make it. The company is very significant. It was a very international import-export business. I don't have enough time to train my sons. I want to have a family meeting, and I want you there, and I want to tell them that I'm not going to live. And I want to tell them that it is up – that I give him permission to try to run the business and succeed. And if it fails, it fails. But don't do it because you think that I would want something else. And I want to assure them that there's a $5 million life insurance policy and trust for their mother. And I want my wife there so that they can choose to run or try this business knowing that it will not impact her financial security. So we had the meeting and he said that and everybody, including me, cried. And he looked at his younger son who really wanted to run the business. And he said, if you want to run the business, run the business. If you don't, you don't have to. If you want to shrink it, go ahead. I don't have enough time in my life to be able to get you to where you need to go. And I want you to know your mother's okay. He died before he even thought he would. And his son ended up shrinking the business and running it. And it's still in existence 20 years later. But I thought, you know, how brave to have that kind of a conversation, really honest conversation, knowing that you're going to die and knowing that that someone, a, a son in his 20s, is going to carry that in his head forever. And he knew that he had already financially protected the mother and the mother knew she was all financially protected. So it all worked as best as it could in a very difficult situation. But losing capacity, being diagnosed with material illnesses, those are very tough decisions. And not everybody can have that kind of a conversation. Yeah, that's an incredible example of lack of ego. Right. Uh, under those and, circumstances. And, and wanting right? to move your family forward, no matter what, you know, understanding it. I mean, this is a man who had built the business from nothing and worked his whole life. 
And and in the end, his health deteriorated and he wanted to give his son the permission to not do that because he knew his son would think, oh, dad would want me to go and, and carry this on. And that's not what the father thought. Right. But but the but on a handful of cases, have I seen people be brave enough to have that conversation? And I'm sure that that's probably true of you, too. It's tough mm-hmm. to do. Very. Yes. Very, very true. Mm-hmm. And I I see the the reverse, and and this gets back to something that you were mentioning. I think on the kind of educational side of things, where I see clients where husband passes away, and now wife is left, and she's handling things great. Um, but husband had his own people, and husband had his own investments, and now that wife is getting educated on the people and the investments, she's not so excited about it. And, but I can see in a lot of those conversations the tension, this like fighting the ghost type uh, tension of wife not wanting to make a change because it's like, well, these were his people and these are his investments, even though she doesn't like them and she can clearly see that they're not right for her. Exactly. And sometimes the power shifts from the spouse to the adult children. And so one of the things I do with widows, if they want to include their adult children, I move my meetings to Saturday. And the reason is because it's easier for the children to attend it. And otherwise what happens is I'm telling her something, she's telling them something, they're talking to somebody else and it's all telephone tag. And um, being loyal to advisors is one thing, but again, it goes it goes to education because life has changed. And chances are, if she's thinking about moving the advice from the advisor, she's been thinking about it a long time, yeah. right? It didn't exactly. just happen. It's because the person never communicated with her, didn't make her feel part of the decision making process, didn't make her feel part of the team, didn't explain what was going on, talked down to her. There's a lot of other things going on in that decision. Yes, I, I see that somewhat frequently, unfortunately. Uh, mm-hmm. Unfortunate for the advisors because they could just comport themselves differently. But uh, where they were kind of condescending to wife, they they would do anything for husband because he, you know, maybe was that kind of personality. Uh, right. And then as soon as husband's out of the picture, you know, all of those feelings, all those sort of interpersonal issues come straight out because, exactly. you know, this person wasn't ever nice to wife anyways. And, probably was doing stuff that wasn't financially to her advantage while husband was alive because that's what husband was wanting to do. Or probably not communicating openly and that's what matters. Yes, yes. Um, So I want to talk about, I do want to talk about that, the communicating openly because I think it's so key. And you've mentioned a couple of times family meetings, which I am a huge fan of. so what do you what do you try to get out of those kinds of meetings? I know we, you you mentioned a bit the composition of the meetings, but substantively, what are you trying to get out of those meetings? Education. Get everybody under. You know, it's so much better to ask the questions and hear the answers when everybody's sitting at the table, than try to second guess what people would have done had they known. And so part of it is just education. A lot of people don't even understand the structure of their assets. What do you know? Who's the designation of beneficiary? What's probate? What's not probate? What the tax, you know, the biggest erosion to most family wells in the country today is not taxation. It's the cost of long term care. How are you dealing with that issue? Who uh, what what are your what what do you want to have happen if you begin to lose capacity? What do you want to have? Where do you want to be buried? You know, in the Bermuda Triangle of estate planning is a second marriage. You know, how are you dealing with those issues? Get a health care proxy. Pick the person you want, whether it's your spouse or whether it's your adult child. They both believe that you love them more than the other person. Make the decisions and let everybody know now while they can take you on. Not afterwards when there's a crisis and they start to fight each other. It doesn't work that way. It's a lot harder. Yeah, and I agree. I think it goes a long way. It's unlikely 
in my experience from those meetings that everybody in the meeting will walk out and they'll know ev- all the minutia and they'll have everything memorized. You know, they'll know what subparagraph says what in the documents and they won't know that level of detail, but at least to understand the overall structure, the overall schematic of the plan, where things are headed and who is going to fit into what roles at what point, I think goes an enormous amount uh, of way to soothing people and just like bringing down the anxiety because I, I think people just naturally have, you know, whether they're men or women or otherwise, they have natural anxiety about two things, money and the unknown of the future. And if you can bring those things down through a meeting just by educating and just sort of explaining this is it, this is where we're headed, everybody is feeling much better when they get out of it. I totally agree. And, you know, that's why one of the biggest mistakes I think clients make is is not coming back and revisiting the plan, Mm -hmm. not necessarily for technical changes, but the people who are in your life now and you would pick to be executors, trustees, power of attorney are probably not the same people you'd pick five years from now or would have picked 10 years ago. And so revisiting your choices there is really important. Yeah. I change mine all the time. <laughs> so I, I can never fault clients who want to change their mind. I'm like, yeah, I changed mine two years ago. Exactly. Um, so, all right. I want to talk a little bit about the education piece because uh, I mean, that's a broad term and there's a lot of different areas where someone would need to get educated to really do effective estate planning. Can you kind of break that down for somebody who might not be so familiar with just how, you know, how colorful this tapestry really is? Like, what are all of the little key areas that somebody would need to be educated in? I think the the choice of fiduciary is probably the most important. You know, it's a thankless job to ask a family member, yet you trust a family member and you always pick the family member who has the most responsible life. So that person already has a full life. So dumping your full life on that person's full life is not helping anybody. So and that person could have a spouse that becomes ill, could have childhood have issues, could have different things going on. So maybe you want more than one person there. Maybe you want to think about the method for succession, the method for removal. So I think a big emphasis on the choice of fiduciary and understanding the skill sets. So for example, somebody would be, uh, who might be your the person making your medical decisions might not be the best person to be handling your finances, might not be the best person to be guardian of your children, yet there should be some continuity of thread through the entire thing so that the the choices are are made clear. So choice of fiduciary, I think, is a big one. Um, How do you own your assets? Nobody who comes into my office ever knows that. Are they in your name? Are they joint name? Is who's the primary designated beneficiary? Who's the secondary designated beneficiary? Is everything there the way it should be? The titling issues. The third is, um, you know, taxation. I mean, we have to deal with that. And especially if you have out of state issues. Also, if you've got unusual or unique assets, a closely held business, valuable art, the vacation home, you know, thinking about all of the different choices that go along with that are very important and understanding it. Yeah, those, those, that's an excellent list. I'll tell you one other that I run into all the time. You alluded to this earlier, but I, I run into this all the time. And that is, it, this was true of lawyers and non-lawyers too, so I'm not like... I'm not discriminating in this comment. Almost nobody understands what a trust is. Nobody. Absolutely nobody. Trying to just get people to understand what it is at its core, at its essence, is a huge leap for me. If I can if I can get somebody to walk out and be like, oh, now I get it, it's it's a big success. And it's the it's the container that holds everything. Like it's the key component. 
And a lot of people think it's just something they do for taxation and they don't really pay attention to it. Or they think that it protects them from creditors, which it doesn't in 99% of the cases. You know, so there's a lot of misinformation about trusts. I agree with you on that. Yeah, completely. So I had um, had some clients there. They were lawyers, um, but they didn't understand what trusts were really. And they weren't familiar with trust. They had their practice areas and their practices, which they did very well in, uh, were completely outside of trust and estates. So they really had no conception of trust. So we talked about the trust and things. And they they wanted to have very specific controls. You know, she wanted when she died for him to be able to use her assets, but then for her assets to go to very specific family members. He wanted the same. And they sort of had split families. And so they're explaining all this to me. I said, yeah, well, Here's here's the way you do it. You know, we have these trusts and the trusts do this and they say this, that and the other thing. And then it magically does the thing you want. And they're like, oh, that's so complicated. Isn't there a way that we could just have some sort of agreement that does all of this? And I just looked him in the eyes and said, yes, it's a trust. They've been around since the 1500s for a reason. Like it's a trust. That's what it is. It's not a contract. You know, the other thing is years ago when I was in my 20s and I was in a partner in a law firm, it was a 4th of July weekend and my partner was on vacation. He was a lot older than I am. And the secretary came running into my office and said, there's a man who's hysterical on the phone. And uh, he is saying, you know, it's an emergency. It's an emergency. My wife's trust became irrevocable last night and da-da-da-da better not be a trustee. And I'm thinking, I said, your wife's trust became irrevocable last night. I said, sir, did your wife die He said, yes, my wife died last night. So a lot of people don't also understand that all all revocable trusts become irrevocable, you know. And so uh, today, you know, with decanting, there are ways that we can change it, but not really, not not away from the beneficiaries. So you start off with this empty vessel that ends up becoming important. And it goes to what I was saying before, like as a snapshot turning into a movie. Right. And it can go for a very long time. It can go for 90 years. It can go more than that. So it's important to understand all the nuances, but nobody ever does. No, I like to tell people they can have they can have simple or they can have control. That's exactly. what you have to pick. Either right. it's going to be simple and you have no control after you die or you're going to have control. It's going to be a little more complicated because it's going to have exactly. a trust involved because that is the legal way that you control things after death. That's there right. is a um, there's another area that I find constantly in need of education across genders. And that is just understanding the difference between different types of what I would call like personal investments, kind of like retirement account type investments, brokerage accounts, life insurance, annuities, you know, the little small differences in the way the accounts are set up, the way that they function. Is that something that you run into as well? Sure. Because for example, a lot of people believe that life insurance is tax-free from a from all perspectives. It's it's tax-free from an income tax perspective. It's tax-free from an estate tax perspective, and that's not true. And it's because they heard the income tax-free part when they were there, and they latched onto that, but they didn't really pay attention or nobody ever explained to them what the rest of it was. And so the taxation character of the assets under the SECURE Act, the uh, pullout for the retirement plans is something people are not generally aware of. And how they work with trusts are people that is something that nobody understands. I mean, they, they don't get it. The other thing is I, what I've seen the biggest mistakes is someone will change from one brokerage house to another. And the broker won't say, go back to your estate planning lawyer. They'll say, how do you want to own the assets? Do you want them joint? And the person will say, sure. Or, you know, do you want them TOD? Sure. And I have a case where that just happened, where a woman died young of pancreatic cancer and her new broker said, oh, well, don't put it in a trust, make it TOD. Well, she has minor children. She died. And when I last time she met with me, they were in the trust. (laughs) But, you know, we now we have to go for 
you know, guardians and guardian ad litems and everything else. And it's because the person did was afraid to or didn't say, you know, coordinate this with your estate plan. Yeah. And that happens a lot. You know, people change brokerage houses more than they change for the most part lawyers. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's a tough one. That one hurts my heart. It is that, true. It's been yeah, terrible. Right. That, that's it's so terrible hard. too because she was divorced from the father who now uh, is the guardian of the children, but not named in any fiduciary capacity. So it's an, it's an ugly, it, it's ridiculous. And mm-hmm. it was unnecessary. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. Yep. A basic, basic, basic mistake. Well, I, it goes back to what we've been talking about, about uh, education, but it, I love that. So that's, that's perfect. I think there's hopefully anybody listening will, will see it's pretty obvious. Like there's a lot to know and there's a lot to sort of be educated on, but that, but to your point, and I, I think this is a really, a really good point that you made that essentially the, the empowerment piece and then the action piece, it starts with education. Starts and with that's education. Always the starting point. And you know, one of the best tools for education is a regular review because nobody really wants to keep this in their head. And if they're coming in every couple of years and they're just reviewing it, they start to understand more and more. And mistakes like that one that I just talked about will get caught. And sure, you're going to pay a lawyer to go in for that review every year or every two years. But believe me, it's going to be a lot cheaper than if you're dealing with damage on the other side of it. Yeah, so true. Every time I do updates for people's documents, I try to send them a letter. And in my letter, I say something to that effect of like, now is the time to do some due diligence and check everything. Just go back and recheck everything. Dig it all out. Look at it. Yep. Well, Patricia, very, very interesting. I could chat about this sort of stuff all day long, but I also know that you and I both have to do work. So um, I'm going to let you go, but I appreciate you doing it. If people are trying to find you, what's the best way for them to find you? Uh, The Ramon website. Okay. So R-I-M-O-N-L-A-W.com. Patricia and Nino there. I'll put your contact information in the show notes too, so people will be able to find you there as well. Thank you, Brent. Always a pleasure. Yes, likewise. Bye-bye. Hey, listeners. Thanks again for joining me on the podcast. It's fun to do it for you. If you're enjoying it, please subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to my blog at wealthandlaw.com and follow me on social media at wealthandlaw. I'll see you there.